This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester. So if you're new to us this morning, we're in this uh, sermon series called Explore God, and we're exploring these kind of common questions that people who are curious about Christianity ask. And so this morning's question on your bulletin is, is Jesus really God? And I'm going to answer that question, but I actually want to take a few steps back and answer kind of a more basic question of, why Jesus? Why would anybody choose to worship Jesus? Why would so many people in this room choose to build their lives around this historical person? And so here's where I thought I'd start. I don't know if you can tell, but I am a millennial. Okay, so that means I was born in the 80s. It means I kind of I remember a time before the internet was, was in my house, and I remember a time after the internet was in my house. And I don't know if you've heard this, but it is really hard to be a millennial. Okay? This is true. And like a good millennial, I'm going to tell you why it's true. Okay? And you're going to understand this. It's not, you know, it's not like crushing student debt you know, that will follow us to the grave. It's not that. It's not graduating college during the Great Recession, which, you know, put a permanent damper on my earning power. None of that. The really hard part about being millennial is picking a restaurant. (laughs) Because when it comes to Friday night, and I want to go out and, and go to a restaurant, this is what millennials do. We pull out our phone, and we go to Yelp, and we start searching. And maybe we go in with an idea like, I think I'm interested in Chinese food tonight. And so we type in Chinese food and 30 different options appear before us. And each of them are claiming, oh, we're the best Chinese food restaurant. We've got the best menu. We've got the best atmosphere. We've got the best ambiance. We've got the best wait staff. And there's all these reviews. And you're wading through these reviews, trying to figure out, you know, which ones, which ones are good, which ones are bad, who just had a bad experience, who uh, is, is totally legit and I should listen to them. You look at one review and you're like, oh, they only have like 100 reviews, but similar restaurants have like 400, so that's a bad sign, even though they have four and a half stars. It's totally overwhelming to pick a restaurant. And so whenever, what inevitably happens is after minutes and hours of scrolling, we just say, you know what? I'm gonna stay home tonight. I'm not gonna go out tonight. I'm just gonna find something in the fridge, you know, a slice of bread, an avocado. (laughs) Just have avocado toast. And then we turn on Netflix and say, I'll just pick out a movie. And the whole process begins again. Because there's so much riding on this decision because we have a limited disposable income that we should be putting towards our retirement, but we're just avoiding that reality until we get there. There's a lot riding on this. We don't want to end up in the restaurant wishing that we were somewhere else. Okay, so why do I bring this up? Because I don't know if you're familiar with kind of the religious and spiritual climate in our country, But the fastest growing religious group is not Christianity. It's not Buddhism. It's not atheism or agnosticism. The fastest growing religious group are called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, religious nuns. People, when you ask them, what religion are you? They say, nothing. I'm nothing. 
And it wasn't always like this. I mean, a generation or two, if you ask someone, what religion are you? Then whether or not they actually believe that religion, whether or not they actually worship on the weekends, they're gonna tell you one of the two or three options that, that their family has chosen or that's in their neighborhood. They're gonna say, well, I'm Catholic or I'm Baptist, regardless of whether they really believe those things. But the religious nuns are different. I mean, they just say, well, nothing. I haven't picked. I don't know how I would pick among thousands of different options, thousands of ways of even being spiritual without being religious. And here's the problem. Religious nuns, you can back this up with data, have an unsatisfied spiritual hunger. Religious nuns are spiritually hungry and they don't know where to go to feed that hunger. And so I heard this when I was talking to you know, a father in the last couple of years. This father was, you know, he's in his 50s, kids are in high school and college. And I was asking him about his own religious journey and he said, yeah, okay, I grew up Christian, I was Baptist, but you know, I left faith almost as soon as I got to college. And later on, when I had kids of my own, I just thought, I'm gonna let them kind of figure it out. He said, it basically, you know, I'm gonna hand them the phone and they can scan through and pick whatever restaurant they wanna go to. I mean, they're my kids, I love them. They can choose whatever they want. He said, but this was weird. My kids started asking questions that I never asked. They started asking questions like, why do I exist? Why does this universe exist? And does my life add anything of value to the universe? And this dad is dumbfounded and he's kind of scared. He's like, why are you asking that? Of course your life has value. Of course there's purpose to your life. And then what he saw is that his kids started gravitating towards the very kinds of religious institutions that he had given up on as they looked for those answers. They had this unsatisfied spiritual hunger and they were looking for answers looking for a place to come home to. And so this morning, maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're spiritually hungry. Maybe you're here because somebody invited you and you're wondering, okay, what's Jesus all about? I'll be open, I'll give this a shot. Why do you guys gather here every Sunday? Why do you do this every week? I'm open. You're hungry and you're open to the idea that maybe Jesus could be an answer to that. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're thinking, I'm really not spiritually hungry. Like, my life is pretty good. And I don't know your life, and so I can't speak into it directly, but I can kind of speak generally that oftentimes people don't think they're spiritually hungry, but really they are. And, and what's happened is they become numb. They become numb to this hunger. But it's in there, and it comes out in ways that, that don't look spiritual or religious. So it could, it could come out in this fastidiousness that you have about your diet or your exercise regimen and what it means to live the good life and your commitments are there. But you do want something more out of that or it, it could come out in this anger that rises up in you when you talk about politics. You say, I, I, yeah, I don't really know where that comes from. I guess I just assumed it's because that's our world, but, but maybe there's something more. Maybe there really is an unmet longing in you Maybe it comes out in a sexual appetite that, 
that scares even you at times. Maybe it comes out in an addiction. There are different ways that this spiritual hunger manifests in our lives. And so maybe for you, and you're thinking now, well, I can notice some of those things, some pieces that don't quite fit. Could it be that that's a sign that I'm hungering for something more? I think that often it is. Religious nuns are spiritually hungry. And so here's, here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna answer the question of why Jesus? Why would anybody go to Jesus to satisfy their spiritual hunger? And in the next maybe 10 minutes or so, I'm gonna go through like almost the whole Bible. So let's just gear up a little bit, take a deep breath. I wanna talk about what, is, what are the Bible's answers to our spiritual hunger? I wanna say the Bible does a couple things. The Bible, this ancient text, explains our world and the way we feel about it in a compelling way. It explains our world and it answers our deepest longings. So here's where we can start. Something isn't right. You know this, I know this, we all know this. Something isn't right. You're getting off the metro at the end of a long week. It's cold and dreary outside. It's dark, there's ice on the ground. And you're going to cross the road and you just wanna get home to your family. And then whooshing by goes this blue Honda Civic. They don't even care that you exist, don't even care that you're there. They're not paying attention to you because they're so focused on getting home themselves. And you think, this just isn't right. People shouldn't treat people this way. There's clearly a crosswalk here. They should slow down. People are inconsiderate. This is not the way the world is meant to be. And I'm deeply familiar with this example because I was driving the Blue Civic last week. <laughs> and if that was you, then my car is actually parked outside and you could go do something to it in the next 20 minutes. And so there's the little annoyances in life where we feel this world just shouldn't be this way. And then there's the bigger things. We get a notification on our phone and it's another scandal. It's another atrocity. It's another broken trust. And we think the world just should not be this way. And so the question I want to ask is why do you think that? Who told you that the world just shouldn't be this way? Because we've all gone to school, we've all heard kind of the, the main story that explains why we're here and how we got here. And that story goes like this. This universe is random. It is by random mathematical chance, a miracle that life exists on our planet. And ever since life came into being on our planet, it's been a battle of strength and power to see who comes out on top. And right now humans are on top. But this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's the narrative that we all receive. That's the story we're told. But if we really bought into that, then when bad things happen, our reaction should be, well, of course that happens. This world is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. But most people don't have that intuition. Most people don't feel like that. Most people have this kind of innate sense that this world is good and that evil is the aberration, evil, wrongdoing is the weird part, not the other way around. So how do we explain that? And the story we're given in textbooks doesn't really help us, 
But I think the story of the Bible really helps us. The story of the Bible in the first two chapters, I mean, it goes like this. It says, you know that feeling that you have inside when you look out over this, this grand vista of the Grand Canyon and you, you just see the world opening before you and you feel like in your heart, your heart is opening as well. Or the feeling that you have when you look down at an infant child and there's this, there's this fragility, there's this vulnerability, there's this preciousness, there's this softness, this peace in their face. And your heart opens up and you have the feeling like this, I'm getting close, this is the way the world is meant to be. That feeling is wonder. And what the Bible tells you in the first two chapters is follow the wonder. Follow the wonder. Your intuition is spot on. This world is created good. You're not believing a lie. You're not believing a fable. This world is created good. Follow the wonder. But then, of course, yes, something's not right. Something's broken. And we all know that as well. We long for peace and justice, and yet we ourselves end up hurting the people that we love most deeply. And we do the best we can. We make all the ethical decisions that we can, and yet our efforts just feel like this paltry drop in the ocean. Like it won't even make a difference. I think this is, this is what makes the Jesus story, the story of the Bible, really stand out in our culture. Because the Jesus story in the third chapter of the Bible it says, the problem isn't just out there with those bad people and those bad systems. I mean, yeah, all that's true, but the problem is also in here in each one of us. We are part of the problem. And that's the humility that the Jesus story offers each one of us. And I feel a resonance there. I feel that explains our world. I feel like that explains these feelings of wonder on the one hand and these feelings of pain and guilt and even shame on the other hand. It explains how these two go together. So the next natural question is, well, how do we fix it? How does our world fix itself? Can we fix ourselves? And that's where the Jesus story continues. So it goes like this. There's a, there's a husband and a wife, and God shows up to them in the ancient world, and he says something that you'd expect an ancient God to say to his people. And he says, I'm going to bless you. And that's the expected part. But then he says something unexpected. He says, I'm going to bless you so that I can bless the world through you. This God of the Bible is not just concerned about the people that are right in front of him. He's not just concerned about the people that worship him or even know he exists. This God of the Bible is concerned about healing and fixing the world. And so the, through the next you know, two thirds of the Bible, you see this story unfold where God is trying to, through his people, bring healing and justice to the world. But their efforts, just like our efforts at justice today, they get tripped up by the same things that we struggle with. Their, uh, their efforts at justice get tripped up by their own comfort. They get tripped up by ego. 
They get tripped up by control. They get tripped up by money and sex and power. The same reasons that our justice efforts fail are the same reasons that their justice efforts failed. And so the story starts stalling out. What's the solution gonna be? And that's when the hero arrives on the scene. That's when this man arrives on the scene who lives the way that we're all meant to live, that we know, the way we know intuitively that we're meant to live. He comes from a poor family. He stands up for the underdog. He fights for the poor and the oppressed. He shows us this new way of living. He teaches us a new way of living, but he also lives it. And it's compelling. This is the story of Jesus. And this is the reason that that billions and billions of people, both today and throughout history, have built their lives around Jesus. This is the reason that, that even people who would never call themselves Christians would, without any hesitation, say, yeah, but I love Jesus. This guy is great. This guy, he answers my longings for my own life. We long for fairness and justice. He shows us what that looks like. We long for community, the idea that our world does not have to be polarized into different factions. And what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus grabbing people from all sides of the political and socioeconomic and racial spectrum and pulling them into community with each other. And that's compelling. That's an answer we need today. We long for healing, both physical and spiritual. And this man, Jesus, is offering both. He's a compelling figure. And so let's talk about Jesus for a minute. Because Jesus, while he has kind of this heroic and like mythic status today, he was a real person. I mean, no reputable scholar doubts that a man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and started a movement that caused such a stir that almost as soon as it started, he was killed. That's a historical fact. But here's another historical fact, that after he died, when it should have been game over for this movement, that a surprising thing happened. This movement started picking up steam and accelerating at a rapid pace. Rapidly, more and more people started following this man, Jesus, who had just died at the very beginning of his career. And so we have to ask a historical question. How in the world did that happen? And what you find is that the followers of Jesus, almost as soon as he died, started saying this, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a historical fact that very soon after Jesus died, his followers started saying, he rose from the dead. Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Jesus is alive. And you don't have to believe that. I mean, that can sound like an incredible story. I mean, really, literally incredible, beyond belief. But you have to to deal with the historical facts that we know. And what we know is that uh, these these common people, his disciples, the, the ones that were his closest followers, these common men gained more courage and charisma 
after he died, which should have been a crushing blow. They gained more courage and charisma after that than they had before that. So what explains that? How do you explain that? And you say, well, I don't know. I mean, they're really disappointed. They had frustrations and I guess they just made up a story that would make them feel better and a lot of people believed it. And so you say, yeah, okay. And we've heard stories like that. They make up a hoax in their own interest. But then you gotta deal with other things. You gotta deal with the fact that each of these men went to the grave proclaiming the same thing, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is not dead. And then you say, well, what was in it for them? And what you find is that each of these men, they did not gain power, they did not gain prestige, they did not gain authority. No, they were tortured. Many of them were killed for their belief. They had nothing to gain. They had everything to gain by going back and saying, it was all a hoax, we made it up, just let me go free. But not one of them did that. And so that's a, that brings up a historical question. How do you explain that? Why would they die for this lie? What did they have to gain? That's a hard question to answer. It actually makes the incredibleness of the resurrection begin to sound more credible. And so at this point, for somebody who's interested in Jesus, I'd wanna ask, I mean, are you compelled by this? What do you think of this story? What do you think of the coherence of this story, how all the pieces fit together across hundreds and even thousands of years? What do you think of this man, Jesus? What do you think of these arguments that maybe a miracle did happen? Do you think it could be true? And I wonder if as soon as I say that, I begin to lose you. Because all of us have grown suspicious of claims that, that say we're the true way, we're the right way. You know, we're, we're a jaded generation. We say, I wanna see another camera angle on this. I'm gonna withhold judgment. I wanna read a few more opinion articles. We're jaded because we've heard so many things that claim to be true that end up being false. So many stories and narratives that, that people live by that were never true. And so we say, you know, I wanna, I wanna just step back. I don't wanna make a decision. I'm not gonna make a decision one way or the other. And if that's where you are, I appreciate that. And I get that, especially in this generation. And I even concede the point that Christianity is just one among thousands of stories that you could choose to live your life by. It's just one among thousands of stories that claim to be true. But let me give you my last best case for why I believe this story of Jesus is true. A philosopher at Notre Dame, he says that when, when you've gone through the end of logic, when you've gone through the end of rationality and arguments, and you have these two opposing viewpoints, the best argument for either of those viewpoints, either of those stories, is going to be the community that is formed around that story, the community that tells that story. And is that community compelling? Does it tell the story in a compelling way? Does the story seem to give credibility to the community? Does the community give credibility 
to the story. And so my last best argument for Jesus is the church. My best argument for Jesus and the truth of his story is the church. And maybe you're sitting in your chair and you're like, whoa, that was a bad move. Like that's, <laughs> that one's not gonna help you. Like, like go back to the historical arguments. Those were interesting. <laughs> but I say, yeah, believe, believe in Jesus because of the church. And you say, why? I could pull out my phone right now and go to CNN and find numerous headlines about abuses of power in the church. That is your best case for Jesus? And I'd say yes, because I don't deny the darkness in the church. I don't deny that there's darkness in the church. I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if more darkness comes out in the news. That doesn't surprise me. And I mourn it and I regret all of it. I even acknowledge that I'm part of this problem in so many ways. So I don't deny the darkness, but what I'd ask you to do is to look for the light. Where do you see light in the church? Because I see light in the church. I see light globally and, and aesthetically in terms of beauty in the church. I see it locally. I see light in the people of the church. I see light in the way that every culture around the world, north, south, east, west, every culture around the world seems to have room for Jesus. They even seem to have room for his mother, Mary, and his earthly father, Joseph. The Holy Family seems to find a home all over the world. I see light in the art and literature that's come from Christianity. I see light when I walk into you know, a, a cathedral and take in the stained glass windows. There's something holy here. There's a presence here. I see light here. I see light here in this particular church, in this group of people. I see light in a church, this church, that celebrates the full giftings and dignity and equality of men and women. I see light in this church that longs for racial justice and is actually doing something about it. Maybe not in a radical way, but in a real way, in a flesh and blood way. I see light there. I see light when I see healing in this church, when I see marriages that are on the brink of divorce with seemingly no way out, no turnaround, when I see those marriages restored. And that's happened many times here. I see light in, in, in men who have been wounded by their own fathers, who have gone on to wound their own wives and children, and then seeing those same men get on their knees in humility, apologizing to their families, saying, what can I do to fix this? And actually making restitution for those wrongs. I see forgiveness. I see reconciliation. I see justice happening. And this isn't the only place. This community isn't the only place that that happens. But that's rare in our world. It's rare to see real, close the book, forgiveness. I love you and we're okay. And we're gonna be okay. In fact, we're gonna get better. I see healing in this church. And my point is that we at Church of the Resurrection, we are not unique. This is happening all over the world. This is why Christianity is actually growing in places of suffering. This has been happening since the, for the last 2000 years, since the very beginning of this faith 
since the very beginning of this community of the church. We're not unique. So yes, personally, I believe the story of Jesus. I believe in his death and resurrection. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to defeat evil, to defeat death. And if he can defeat death, then he can defeat any evil power in our world. I believe that story. But I believe it because I've also lived it. I was born into a a broken home and I carried, and even to this day, still carry that brokenness in me. And as a, as a young teenager, I was, I was insecure, I was scared, I was afraid, I was angry. And I would act out in that and, and be mean. I would be a bully to others. And I didn't wanna be these things. But I, I felt like I didn't even know how to not be those things. And one day I found myself in a church and I didn't know any of the rules of church or any of the decorum. And they said, you know, open your Bibles to Matthew. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I only knew Jesus because he was on the front cover of the Bible, wearing a nice blue sash with a red beard like mine. <laughs> I guess I didn't have the beard then, but, but you, you, you know what I'm talking about. I end up in this church, and what I'm expecting is that I need to keep my guard up because this community is going to be like the other communities that I've been in. And I'm going to have to toughen up and instead, what I found were, were strangers to me who became mothers and fathers to me. I found a family that embraced me. I found a family that, that saw potential in me and believed in me. I saw a family that would, that would lovingly say, well, you don't want to act like that. That's not who you are. I met this community that showed me how my broken story could fit into the story of the Bible could fit into the story of Jesus, of redemption, of healing, and I found healing, and I'm still finding healing. And as I've, as I've lived in different places and worshiped in different churches, this family has grown, and it's included people that I would never have expected, all ages, many races and ethnicities, many different political perspectives. These people have become mothers and fathers to me, brothers and sisters, cousins, nieces, and nephews. I believe the story of Jesus, but I've lived it in the church. And my story is not unique. I know this is true for many of those here who have found family here, who have found healing through Jesus in the church. This can be anybody's story. And so if if you're a Christian this morning and you believe this story as I do, then, then here's my challenge to you to recommit to telling the story of Jesus well because it is a great story. It's an amazing story and it deserves a great telling. And the way we tell that story is the way we love one another in a flesh and blood kind of way. Not just gathering in this building and going back home, but real love, real dependence, real brother and sisterhood. We tell the story well when we, when we welcome in our community, when we seek justice in our community and around our world. So if you're a Christian, let's tell the story well. Let's recommit to that. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're on the fence about Jesus, 
You think he's interesting, he's compelling. Then here's what I tell you, don't stop searching. Because that, that hunger that you have inside, that's meant to be satisfied. And most of what you're given to satisfy that hunger is not gonna satisfy you. The relationship will not satisfy you. The promotion will not satisfy you. The title will not satisfy you. So keep searching. I would even say, pick up a Bible and read the story of Jesus for yourself. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the person you meet in the Bible? Are you compelled by him? And then I'd say this, to put down your phone. Because at the end of the day, the only way to know if you've found the right restaurant is to go and visit. I'd encourage you to come to a community like this one and look around, get to know the people, get to know the people who come here week after week. How does their story fit into this story? And do you meet the same Jesus here that you meet in the Bible? Because I believe you can. And because the historical Jesus, the one in the Bible, asks you the same question that we believe that Jesus is alive and is here now, present with us through the Spirit, that Jesus asks you and asks each of us the same question today and every day. And he's gentle, but he wants an answer. He wants resolution. He wants you to have resolution. He asks you this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.